You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we speak with journalist John Storr about the connections between mass killings, gun violence, and white supremacy. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be discussing gun violence and white supremacy with John Storr. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. For this current event section, we're going to be talking about the January 6th House committee hearings. Um, the first hearing was actually last night. We're recording this on June 10th. The f- first hearing was June 9th. The panel went on for about two hours. There was video. There was testimony. I don't know. What do you think, Andrew? Did we learn anything new we didn't already know? And I guess part B is of the question would be like, is this going to change anything about the fact that Donald Trump led an insurrection against the U.S. government and seems to have walked away scot-free? Okay, on the first issue, yeah, I learned some things around the edges that I didn't know. Basically, I followed all the revelations. I followed it semi-seriously. I understood that there was a conspiracy. Uh, I had several parts to it, that the insurrection was part of that conspiracy, and its specific intention was to disrupt the certification of the election. I understood that they were like trying to get Pence away from the Capitol. So in the main, all of this just confirmed what I knew, but it laid it out with more of a timeline and more of a consistent narrative than I had in my head. And of course, there were uh, small things that that I learned, and actually everybody learned. I mean, we, we heard William Barr talking to the committee staff and saying, you know, I said that it was bullshit, all this stuff about the election being stolen. I told the president in no uncertain terms that this was complete nonsense, that this was crazy stuff. We heard that. We heard Ivanka Trump saying uh, on this question, she believes uh, William Barr, not her father. (laughs) We did learn some stuff. And even I was listening, you know, to to some of the the pundits and and so forth, commentators on, on TV, and they were saying, yeah, they learned some stuff as well. Was it really big picture, earth-shaking revelations of the type that we didn't know? No. For me, were there people watching who, for the first time, really were enlightened that it wasn't just people touring the, the Capitol or a riot that got out of hand, you know, some spontaneous, uncoordinated thing? Yeah, if such people were open-minded and paying attention and didn't know before, there would be, I think, last night, a, a lot of big, mind-blowing revelations. For myself, I expect for you, not not, not so much. I, I, I Look, I, we, we don't know whether Trump is going to go scot-free. The, the, the committee does not have the power to enforce the law. They can send uh, over referral to the Department of Justice, and then it's in Merrick Garland's hands. Of course, it's in Merrick Garland's hands anyway. Yeah, well, I, I I just been so frustrated and disappointed by this whole process. It's taken so long. I mean, I think I've said this before. Usually, when there's a coup attempt and it fails, the people are like round up and thrown in jail or executed immediately. And the fact that we're like waiting around for years, 
you know, for something to happen. And the best we get is this presentation, which I agree was well done. And there were there were some details that fleshed in the timeline a little better. The stuff about the Proud Boys scouting out the Capitol ahead of time. I didn't know about that. Maybe that was in public information. I don't know. Or some of the testimony from, you know, Ivanka and Jared and Barr. That's all nice. It fleshes in details. But it's nothing that's totally surprising. So just the fact that we're waiting around forever for like this presentation by this committee and it's not even a committee that can prosecute anybody, it, it's frustrating. You know, maybe there'll be some big bombshell next week when they do the next, you know, part two or part three. Maybe they'll talk about Roger Stone's connection to the Proud Boys and or specifically we'll find some smoking gun where Donald Trump's told Enrico Tario, whatever the guy, Proud Boy leader's name is, invade the Capitol and beat up cops. I don't know. But it's just so ridiculous that this has gone on for so long and we still have the the people behind it walking around scot-free. I mean, Liz Cheney mentioned that, uh, was it Scott Perry and several other Republican elected officials asked for pardons from Trump for their participation in January 6th. So obviously a lot of people who are high up are implicated in this, but are, is anyone going to do anything about this? Are they just going to go after all these small fries? I mean, I, it seems obvious there was like a massive coordination between a lot of different entities to make this happen, including like law enforcement, which, you know, it seems like the only narrative about law enforcement that they want to, to paint these committee hearings is of these noble cops who got the crap beat out of them by Proud Boys. But we also know that there were like cops on January 6th who were opening the doors to the building for uh, rioters. We know there was a massive failure of law enforcement. They didn't bring out enough numbers of cops to protect the building. You know, uh, the National Guard wasn't deployed. All Normal things you would expect during a coup to have happen didn't happen. There must have been reasons for that. I can't imagine that it was just like an innocent mistake or an innocent failure. Like people some somewhere along the chain of command, there was some complicity in this. But I don't think the January 6th committee wants to paint that picture. So they're not going to like parade out the testimonial of people in law enforcement and show that they were complicit in helping the writers. They want to make this about like good noble cops and bad writers. Right. I mean, it could be, it could be that there's some kind of cover up going on. It could be that they just haven't gotten the goods on people that they would need to get to make a public case and say, here, we've found this out, and it's unambiguous, and X person in the White House contacted Y person in the Capitol Police uh, leadership. We, we don't know it at, at this point. I mean, it, to my mind, it's a huge issue. But I, I don't know that I can pin it on something that happened specifically within the Capitol Police or, or what. But it is a big issue of why there was such a breakdown in law enforcement and, and why supposedly the people who were uh, in, in charge of, of keeping the peace at the Capitol didn't do it. Obviously, there was some sort of collusion with the White House. I, I, I don't know more than that, really. I don't know if they're going to get to the bottom of that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're interested in getting to the bottom of that. They don't want to come out as like anti-cop or something. Well, it's also the people that are in charge of protecting the house, right? These are the people that are supposed to be protecting them from violence. So they it's hard for them to investigate them. Yeah, I mean, some things came out very early, and I think it was in this committee. Maybe it was not this committee, but some things came out. But what you had was uh, from every different policing unit, department, metropolitan police, this, that, everybody was passing the buck and saying, 
I, I don't know. I'm I'm I'm, all, I'm willing to wait and see what more they they present. It's like an episode of Columbo. You know, the Columbo motif is like not a whodunit, it's a how catch him. The episode starts with the crime, everyone knows who the bad guy is, and then you wait for an hour to see how Columbo's going to catch them. That's what this feels like, except it feels like it's never going to end. We all know what happened. Maybe we don't know all the details, but we all know what happened. And we're just like waiting forever to see if they're actually going to do something about it. Right, and the question is, is there going to be, oh, just one more thing. Yeah, it seems like always <laughs> just one more thing, and then... I hope there's one more thing or one more thing. I don't know, you know? Maybe the entire case was really laid out in a summary form last night. I, I, I don't know. They got a, a, a late start. They've been taking the time. They, they've interviewed over uh, a thousand people or something. So they've been very thorough, but there's a limit to what they're able to do because they're not getting cooperation from key people. Yeah, but they've also been, seems like they've been very slow to issue subpoenas and all this back and forth. They're very slow to like charge people with contempt for refusing subpoenas. It's just like at all levels, the response from the Justice Department and from the House panel should have been immediately to go out with guns blazing and to clean up instead of just this incredibly slow process. And the slowness of it gives credence to the other side. It legitimizes the coup. Every day we have to wait for consequences. Or at least it makes it seem like it's no big deal and that really all of this is just about playing politics. Because if there were a real national emergency, they would do to Donald Trump what they did to Osama bin Laden, etc. I think somebody like Merrick Garland probably thinks the way you save democracy is by adhering to every norm, dotting every I, crossing every T. And so you have to, to sort of placate that. The committee's got to go through all the kinds of procedures and do absolutely everything it can, not to refer people for contempt before they show that they've made every good faith effort to get them to cooperate and testify. But even then, like, there were people who didn't make any real effort or did and then didn't make any effort to, to testify. And what came down a couple of weeks ago is two uh, people that the, the committee referred, Justice Department said, no, nah, we're not going to do anything about it for, for contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with the subpoena. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot to blame, I think, with regard to what the Department of Justice is not doing. You know, I think the, the, the committee is between a rock and a hard place, given the fact that once they, they find their facts, all they can do is send things to the Department of Justice. So if you're you know going that route, you kind of say, well, we got to do it the way that it's maximally effective for the DOJ. This is the point, is, is, is real people are, like you say, going to say, if this were really serious, they would have done something about this already, and they wouldn't be engaging in this showiness and, and all these maneuvers and so forth. Yeah, but look, Osama bin Laden was, was not an American, and he, he was an Arab, and Donald Trump is a rich white American, and former president, and commands the loyalty of the whole Trump white base, etc., so he gets preferential treatment. It's just, I mean, I happened to be, last night I was, just before the committee hearings, I was reading a book by local author Solomon Jones about the Black Lives Matter movement, and he's going into detail, retelling the story of all these various people who've been killed by the police, you know, Breonna Taylor, Michael Brown, George Floyd, sort of retelling the stories. And so I, that was all in my mind, right? The way, like, police violence in America is so, the justifications for violence are so slim right it's like 
I thought someone looked scary, so I had a right to shoot him. You know, I thought somebody might be carrying a gun, so I had a right to shoot him. And then I go from reading that, right, to turning on the committee hearings, and I'm seeing actual people who are pl- who are trying to overthrow the U.S. government, storming the Capitol, and the cops are just, like, doing nothing. No guns come out. There's no scent, There's no pepper spray. Like, I mean, when would you ever add a, pro- a big protest where the cops didn't, use pepper spray i mean what the fuck were they do, do who dropped the fucking ball i mean it just the it's just so insane the difference it is insane the question is where was the breakdown i mean we know that at some level people were informed ahead of time in law enforcement military and so forth but it, it looks to me in the main like the capitol police were kind of left on their own to handle this and that they are absolutely incapable of handling this. Oh, no, I, I don't disagree with you. I think it seems like they left a small amount of cops and they just threw them under the bus. And I, if I was one of those cops, I'd be pissed. You know, I'd want to know why I was like sacrificed to the mob. But I, you know, I haven't seen any of the Capitol Police come out like trying to, you know, making any statements about why, you know, who threw us under the bus or threw us to the dogs. Anyway, it just it's just absurd that this has gone on. And it's not just the day of. I'm just saying there's been no law enforcement response, except like the Justice Department slowly rounding up people. And most of the Justice Department's work seems to be being done by web sleuths who are volunteering their time to track down rioters on the Internet and submit this information to the Justice Department. I don't know what Merrick Garland's doing all day, but he doesn't seem to be doing shit to deal with the fact that there was a coup, a, a coup against the U.S. government. Yeah, it, it, the Department of Justice response is just not, not looking good. And the failure to respond is just emboldened the Trump base. They're like, okay, well, we can get away with this. So what's our next plan? You know, then that's when you get like Rick Scott and Doug Mastriano and, you know, everyone's like competing to be the next insurrectionist Trump candidate. Uh, This is now like the new playbook is you attack the legitimacy of elections. You like embed yourself with militias and mob violence and you just get ready to like take over. Right. I think that at some level, these people probably suspect that they don't have enough power to really fundamentally change things, wipe out the Proud Boys, wipe out the uh, the Oath Keepers, lock up 150 or so key Trumpites, unless they're able to change public sentiment. So it looks to me like a lot of this is uh, an attempt to change public sentiment or at least a sizable portion of the public, you know, around the margins. We have to understand that this was partly just a show meant to affect public opinion. Uh, what we saw last night and what's coming down the pike, and I, th- I think it was quite good at doing that. I mean, the, the, the question is, how many people are open-minded, ready to be convinced that, that are left, you know, and paying attention and, and, and so forth. But this is, the, my major fear is that, like, the, the, the people at the Department of Justice and the White House, etc., they're looking at the situation and they're saying, if we were to do what needs to be done, we would have a major split within the, the military, we would have this, we would have that, we would have uh, these insurrections and we couldn't quell them because of, we don't have the, the, the power to fight uh, here and there, there's a civil war and we could well lose it. I mean, there, there might be those kinds of calculations. Uh, that's what really worries me. 
In terms of who is persuadable, that's like a big issue because, again, these hearings are meant to try to reach as much of the public who hasn't been following, who doesn't know. The problem is Fox was not carrying the hearing. A lot of people are, are, are tuned out. They don't want to know the Fox viewers and so forth. But what was impressed on me by, I think, Michael Steele, ex-Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, kind of never Trumper, uh, also uh, this CBS News poll that just came out, is about one quarter of people in the country who identify with the Republicans are not down with the, the general... Fascist coups. Yeah, they want an investigation, and they want this kind of thing to be punished and, and disallowed from happening again. So that's like a quarter of uh, the Republican population, and that works out to, I don't know, maybe about 8% of the, the entire world. U.S. population that um, is is just not down with the, the the mainstream normalizing of this within the Republican Party, and so you get that plus a section of in, independents, and you're actually talking about I, I think not a lot of people who are persuadable, but it's well over ten percent of the the population. Well, it'll be interesting. It's not only are they persuadable, but do they prioritize this issue? enough to affect their votes because obviously republicans they're going to run on inflation and critical race theory and uh, trans athletes and uh mostly just the price of gasoline and they're going to say everything else is a distraction so you know you could be a republican voter who's like well yeah i'm kind of against fascist coups but man inflation is all joe biden's fault so you know i mean that's part of the problem i think with, with these Republicans that are maybe not like full-on Trump Republicans. So maybe they're uncomfortable with Trump to certain levels, but do they really understand the gravity of the situation enough or care about the gravity of the situation enough for it to prioritize it in their politics? Or is it sort of like, yeah, I, I would rather live in a liberal democracy than a fascist state, but the most important thing to me is gasoline prices or knowing like what private parts the high school athletes have you know looking at the genitals of of swimmers is more important to me than like fascism in america like so a lot of republicans like they might say certain things in polls but they also have really fucked up priorities that's for sure you're, you're not going to get a, a massive turn i guess away from the republican politics but when you've got the Republican candidates who are big lie enthusiasts like Mastriano in Pennsylvania, that might make a difference in, in some elections where people go, you know, well, I hate the Biden, I hate the liberals, but this is a bridge too far. It might be. Uh, we'll see. Uh, up next, our conversation with John Storr about mass shootings and white supremacy. Uh, we're recording this segment on June 3rd, um, just a week after the May 24th mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, that killed 19 kids and two teachers, and just a couple weeks after the May 14th shooting in Buffalo, New York, and the supermarket that killed 10 shoppers. And our guest today is John Stoor. He's going to be talking about some recent pieces that he's written and published in the editorial board website discussing uh, the connection, as he sees it, between gun violence in the U.S. and white nationalism. And I think 
listeners will find uh, what he has to say interesting, and it'll be interesting for us all to discuss because John's challenging some of the ways we think about gun violence in the U.S. and connecting it to some of the issues that we discuss all the time on this podcast. So I think we'll have a good conversation. So welcome, John Storr. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome, John. This should be a great conversation. Yeah, I think it will be. John is a fellow at the Yale Journalism Initiative, a contributing writer for the Washington Monthly, a business columnist for Hearst Newspapers, an essayist for the New Haven Register, and a U.S. News and World Report contributing editor. I'm not most of those things anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you want to tell us what you are so you gave us the, the better bio? Yeah, I'm the editor and publisher of the editorial board. Okay, but you've done a lot of journalism for in a lot yeah. of different capacities. Yeah, yeah. Over yeah. the years, yeah. First, how long have you been thinking about this connection between gun violence and white nationalism? And how did you form your ideas around this? I've been thinking about gun violence since Sandy Hook in 2012. My daughter was not yet two when it happened. So, And it happened down the road from where I live in New Haven. So it was very personal. And those those were first graders, 20 of them. So how did I think about the connection between that and white nationalism? I think it came, came about when I started reading about a book published in the 1980s, I believe, called The Birth Dearth. I don't remember the name of the author at the moment, but he outlines a crisis that America is facing, that America is facing a a crisis of how are we going to continue with the Western tradition when white people are are dwindling in number. In that book, he talks about how are we going to increase the number of white people in this country? And he, he identifies abortion. In effect, he says, if you can reduce the number of white women who have abortions in this country, then you will have white women having more white babies. And so with more white babies, you will have a restoration of sorts of the core principles of democracy. And all of that is code for white or white power. And I started connecting, I've always thought abortion, immigration, and guns were kind of the three-legged stool of right-wing politics. And I started thinking about, well, how does that all that apply to immigration? Well, it's pretty simple. Close the door. Don't let any brown people in or non-white people in. If they come from Europe, that's fine, let them in, but don't let any of the other people in, close the door. And my evidence of that is, well, we as a country care very much about the southern border, but care almost nothing about the northern border, right? So, and then what? how does that relate to guns? Well, when you start putting guns in a lot more people's hands, a lot more white people's hands, because they have more wealth with which to buy guns, you can terrorize the people who are already here and can put them in their place. That three-legged stool of right-wing politics is in the interest of restoring what's what I call the natural order of things. And that natural order of things is with white Christian men, especially rich white Christian men, on top. And so that's the connection between those, those things. And with guns, you have to remember, like, a gun is a metaphor as much as it is a literal object. And that metaphor is pretty, it, the meaning of that metaphor is pretty clear in American history. It means white power. If you put a gun in the hands of law enforcement, what does that mean? That means law enforcement is the enforcement of white power. So anytime Ted Cruz or one of those people talks about 
Democrats trying to infringe the rights of law-abiding citizens, notice they always say that, what he's really talking about is white citizens, citizens who should be free to stand on the necks of other people. So that's, that's really where it all began for me. I did not recall this book that John mentioned, The Birth Dearth. I, so I just Googled it, and it was written not just by somebody, you know, and not like some fringe white nationalist kind of person at the time. It was written by Ben Wattenberg, who back in the day was a very influential commentator, pundit. He was a neocon, and he was influential in moving the, the Democratic Party first away from, you know, the kind of uh, McGovern politics, and then he moved, you know, further right. And the interesting thing is, he was Jewish. And, and, and 1987 is not that far removed from the Holocaust, and to have somebody talking about, you know, not enough white people being born in America, that's, that's pretty shocking. I cannot... I really blame myself. How come I, this never penetrated my consciousness? One of the first things that still stood out to me as I started reading the, the pieces that you wrote after the Uvalde massacre was that you wanted to characterize these mass shootings as something other than just isolated events by like, you know, mentally unwell people or, you know, loners, but to argue that they are a type of political violence, not just to say that, there's a political context in which they happen, like context in which guns are prevalent in society. But that there's actually the type of violence and fear generated by these mass shootings has like a political reason to it. And it's like part of a type of politics. So maybe you could go into that a little bit, because I think most people don't make that kind of argument when they talk about these mass shootings, right? They might give some context, like because of these policies by Republicans. There are a lot of guns and that allows crazy people to go out and shoot things. But there are not as many people saying, well, this is actually the point. Yeah, violence is is the point. Uh, And also the consequences of violence, meaning the the pernicious dread and fear of arbitrary death. That's the point. Think about what I said earlier about the law and how the law, the enforcement of law was the enforcement of white power for virtually all of our history. And really up until 1964. And even then, it was just, it wasn't monolithic anymore, but it was still present. Fast forward to 2008, and you have the election of the first black president whose presidency was the result of liberal democracy. Now you have, instead of a black man being subject to the law, i.e. subject to the enforcement of white power, now suddenly he's holding the gun, right? And so you got to understand how that looked from the perspective of right-wing politics. Everything was upside down. God, uh, the natural order of things, God's law was perverted, and that could not stand. I say to 2008, but I think this mentality, I think the right-wing decided it was going to war after 2012, and that was Obama's re-election. Shortly after Obama's re-election, you had Sandy Hook. And did the, the Republicans had a choice to make. They could continue as they had been for a long time being, you know, being for sensible gun laws, laws regulating how many bullets you can have and what kinds of guns and so on and so forth. Well, they knew who their people are and they decided, no, we're not going to do that. They decided that 20 dead kids was the price of white power, of preserving white power or taking it back, really. 
is what I mean. You know, black people, you know, Obama represented all black people to these people. We're supposed to be subject to the law, right? And suddenly he's now enforcing it. And, and so when they would tell us that, that Obama was tyranny, they really felt it because they were afraid that Obama was going to do to them what white people had been doing to people like Obama since the beginning of the republic. Of course, Obama was, Obama was not going to do that ever, and no, no reasonable person thinks that, but these people are not thinking in the same reality we are. So I have come to the, th the theory that every act of mass murder is in one way or another a reaction to liberal democracy undermining the natural order of things. I have come to think that all public violence is political violence. And I have come to think that whether they're conscious of it or not, this violence benefits the Republican Party. I wrote in today's piece, uh, when you have a open society whose members fear arbitrary death anytime, any place, you don't need a dictator because those members of that open society will close society all by themselves. And that's a form of social control that inherently benefits the Republican Party. You know, you see a lot of these massacres, shootings, and so forth, and you've got people who are unstable, and they've got clearly, you know, their own individual personal things going on, in addition to the explicitly white nationalist, you know, murderers. So when you say that all of this violence is political violence, how do you make the leap from, I guess I'm playing devil's advocate, but for some people that's a big leap from, oh, there's a crazed person and he did it because he's a crazed person. What is political about that act? It is a big leap, but I, I live in the real world and, you know, even crazy people live in the real world too. They are products of a society just like everybody else. And they, whether they're conscious of it or not, feel certain political currents, certain political dynamics in their lives. Adam Lanza was a shooter at Sandy Hook and he was generally unstable, but he lived with a mother who had guns everywhere. And I have no doubt that the discourse in that house was of a right-wing variety. It doesn't matter if he was deranged or not. He's going to pick up on all that stuff. And, you know, at one point he's going to act on those kinds of politics. I think we get all hung up on motive. I think we get hung up on the fact that like, oh, if this shooter doesn't leave an explicit manifesto saying, I did this for this reason, you know, then it can't be political violence. And it's just like, well, why, why would we think that? We're all products of this society. I mean, and people who are mentally ill are not like, they're not living in a vacuum. They live here too. And I also think that if we're going to insist on explicit evidence to prove political motive, then we're actually helping the Republicans because they don't want to talk about the political context in which we all live. They would rather think that nobody remembers history, everybody lives in the present tense, and we're all just atoms bouncing off of each other. That's, that's the way they want everyone to think about the world, and we don't have to believe that. So in today's piece, just to push this forward, I quote an Associated Press report from Tuesday, and it outlined seven instances of, of mass shootings in the span of three days all across the country. And that's just three days out of 365. We live in a violent context. How can it not be political? <laughs> the other thing about violence is that it's contagious. It's like a virus. Um, so we don't really need to know what a motive is. It just it spreads because it wants to spread. And the means by which, by which it spreads are inherently political. 
One thing that's, that's extremely obvious is that guns are a lot more available in the United States than kind of like almost everywhere in the world, and that there are social policies and Supreme Court decisions and a political agenda that's been pursued for 40 years and an ideology that we're going to fight to the death, you know, as, as John said, to take back our country. This didn't start from nowhere. It, it had a basis among the, the white population, pro-Confederacy people and so forth. Way back, I, I remember when I was a kid, this was around 1965 and so forth. And I'm sure you know this Brendan, you got the pickup trucks with the Confederate flags in the windows and the uh, gun rack on top. That, that's been going on a long time, but then then you began to get more and more this push of the right wing, and they were identifying the right to bear arms with basically the right of insurrection to take back their country. So you put the availability of guns and, then, and the, the, the social motives for that, for getting the motive of the, of the shooter, you're going to get this kind of thing happening again and again, and even if uh, the Republicans don't want it and whatever thoughts and prayers go out, it's it's the price to pay for white supremacy, for taking back the country and so forth. I, I'm, I'm totally sympathetic to everything John's saying here. Um, yeah, and I, I think your piece, John, helped me tie it together a little more clearly in my head than it was before. But I mean, you can look back through U.S. history, whether it's like winning the West, fighting for the Confederacy, the KKK, the gun and, and the, the right to a gun as a fundamental part of the sort of vigilante mentality that is associated with like protection of family and protection of like this institution of white power in America. You can see it in all these different iterations, but there's a certain cultural aesthetic that's like a thread through it all which is this the vigilantism the anti-federal government the you know the white nationalism and it's so much part of the aesthetic in which guns are talked about marketed celebrated all over the country it's not just that there are a lot of guns and people who make bad decisions with them but there's a whole sort of ideology and culture around how they're used you you say an interesting thing in um one of your pieces uh, saying that this debate over guns, though, was often just framed as gun rights versus the right to safety, this sort of dichotomy. And usually when things are phrased in dichotomies, it's always like a, it's presented as like a balance, right? We have to find the proper balance between your rights and my rights or this abstract right and this other abstract right. You say that Republicans will always win this debate when it's framed in terms of rights versus rights. How is that? Why, why would that always lead to them winning? Well, one way of describing the means by which they win is if you lock up things in Washington, you can make room for the states to begin loosening in haste all the various gu previous gun control laws. So that's one way of looking at it. And, and in this way, the Republicans are winning this. There is no deadlock that the Republicans are winning. But as to your question about framing, I tend to think a lot about normal people. Normal people are people who have other things to do than pay attention to politics, and, and that disqualifies the three of us. We are not normal. So from the point of view of a normal person who really isn't paying attention all that much, the presentation of this framing is a head-scratcher because you think, well, people should have the right to bear arms and protect themselves. And on the other hand, people should have the right to safety and security. And so therefore, both are right and nobody wins, right? And so th that leads to deadlock politically. 
I think that is a framing that exists in a historical vacuum. And my goal is to take that framing and put it back into history so that you can see that, no, it's really not rights versus rights. This is a reaction to liberal democracy. And that's really the only way you can make sense of 10 years of mass slaughter. I mean, otherwise, it just seems so senseless, right? I mean, really, it makes no sense. And to, to make it make sense, you have to put it in the stream of political history. And then suddenly it's like, oh, yeah. Now, not only does it make sense, but you can see like, oh, here's who benefits from this, right? You know, think about it. A population that's scared, and, and our population is scared, is a population that can be controlled. It's a population that will no longer have faith in a democracy or in the democratic process, the values of liberalism or anything. It will instead turn to the party with the most guns and the most commitment to restoring law and order. See what I mean? Obviously, it is not law and order. What they want is anarchy and chaos. But they want people to think that they are the party of law and order so that people turned to the Republicans to save them. This is like Nazism 101. I mean, a strong man will protect you. Only I can fix this, right? I'm going to turn society into a hellscape and then everybody will turn back to me to save them. And that's kind of what, what's going on. Yeah, only I can fix this. Uh, I hope people know that's a reference to the former guy. That was his campaign slogan in 2016. And he really fixed things well, didn't he? Yeah, right. I mean, once you start seeing gun violence as political violence, it makes much more sense. And you start to think, it's political violence. Why hit the grocery store? Why not just amass an army, right? Why not do that? Why not get all the militias together and just raise hell and take take down Washington? And well, the answer is that they would be dead. (laughs) The government would crush them. And they know this. And so what do you do when you can't win a full-on attack? Well, you do what suicide bombers did in Iraq. You hit soft targets, like and in our case, that would be churches and grocery stores and schools and so on, right? And that way you create enough chaos uh, in order to, and then, pre- and then present yourself as the party of law and order so that a democratic society voluntarily hands over its freedom to you. And that's, that's the subject of my newest piece is that we're not free. We cannot possibly be free with this much violence going on. I, I, I want to read a passage here that for you. Um, there is no reasonable definition of freedom that includes the fact that, quote, over the last two decades, more school-aged children have died from guns than on-duty police officers and active-duty military combined. That's what Biden said last night. And he goes on to say, think about that. More kids than on-duty cops killed by guns, more kids than soldiers killed by guns. We can't be free, not with that. And we're kidding ourselves if we continue to think of ourselves as free. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. 
The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. What you were saying a few minutes ago about living with the fear of violence causing a type of need or desire for people for a strong man for the restoration of order that contributing to re Republicans' success politically, that makes me think of a slightly different context, and that's just the rise in gun violence in urban areas and its effect on policing and people's perception of policing in cities. I live in a Philadelphia which has had a huge spike in gun violence since the since 2020. I mean, for example, last weekend, there were 13 people killed uh, by gun violence over Memorial Day weekend in Philadelphia. That's like a normal weekend in Philadelphia, right? More than are shot in the Buffalo supermarket shooting. It's like a normal Monday, you read the paper and there's like seven to like 12 people have been killed over the weekend in just random acts of shooting all over the city, right? I mean, for one thing, we could talk about the fact that gun violence in the U.S. disproportionately kills people of color. I think in 2020, I read that African Americans were 12 times more likely to be killed by a gun than white Americans. And that, that is a huge disparity. That's just not like two to one or five is 12 to one, according to this uh, Reuters piece I was reading. So even though this culture of like, we need guns, we need guns, feeds into this, uh, what we think of as like this more rural and white politics, 
There's also the reality that in practice, these guns are mostly killing black people. And so they're, the white people are not feeling, they're not feeling the same pain. Getting, they're not experiencing the level of fear and just social dislocation and chaos that people of color are feeling like in the cities where it's like a daily thing to worry that you might get shot, right? So they can run around with their hunting rifles and like AR-15s and their shooting ranges and like have fun and it's all like a, almost like a fantasy. But when it spills over into real like daily violence, it's it's usually this like mass proliferation of guns and assault weapons and stuff is affecting mostly people in cities and people of color. And it's also, we, we've gone uh, dramatically from two years ago where in the George Floyd protests, people were talking about defunding the police to a lot of calls for increased funding to police in cities in response to gun violence. So it's having this effect on the social movements that just a few years ago were calling for the st- strong critique of policing. And now we're starting to hear people say, but hey, we need cops to do <laughs> to protect us, right? Now, Obviously, like a big problem where I live and probably in a lot of cities is that police slowed down after the Black Lives Matter movement. They just stopped closing cases. The homicide closure rate in Philadelphia is abysmal and it's been that way for several years. So you could probably, and some people do argue that this police slowdown was an attempt to like increase chaos and violence in the cities and hope that people would change their politics, stop criticizing the police beg the cops to come back in and save us, you know? And that's a fear I've had for for a while, that this was going to turn around and the police were going to be sort of emboldened by this rise in violent crime, just like they were the crime bill in the 90s and this response to uh, the rise of crime in America. Yeah. You know, the, I think the, often the discussion of cities and guns and black people is, is really, it's seen in isolation from the rest of the country. And this is to the benefit of those who say things like, well, gun laws don't work. Look at Chicago. Gun laws don't work. Look at Philadelphia. And the problem with, I don't know Philly much, but the problem in New York is they get, they get guns from Virginia and Mississippi. And the problem with <laughs> Chicago is, they, is people get guns from Indiana and Iowa. Then when guns are used to commit violence, which is what guns do, they justify greater police power. And remember the police, we need police. And I, I, I believe we need police. And I, especially we need police to actually solve crimes. But usually what happens is that police are the last line of defense against liberal democracy. <laughs> if things don't work politically for those against liberal democracy, uh, they can always trust in the police to get the job done. It's really more constructive to think of police departments as occupying armies instead of the good guys. When you think of them as occupying armies, all of it starts to make much more sense. If you think of them as like, is the Israeli military occupying the West Bank? <laughs> right. So if, if they are occupying, if they're occupying armies, why do we need occupying armies? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the underlying sense which is really important, is that people need to be safe, they need to be protected, the communities need to be protected, but not by an occupier who doesn't have your interests at heart. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's what I mean by, I mean, I think it was Jamel Bowie from from the Times who said that um, we need a police to solve crimes, but we've never had a a police department that looks like that. Right. I mean, you, you look at what happened in Uvalde and, and, you know, you look at the preferential treatment, like you guys who are off duty, you can go and rescue your kids and the other people, the Latino people, basically, you know, their, their kids are going to be slaughtered here. 
Yeah, yeah. Was it Chomsky who said something like, a free market is great, but we've never tried it. Something, you know, something like that. And, and uh, what we keep being told that it's a free market. You know, same thing with police. Gandhi, Western civilization is a wonderful idea. You know, somebody should try it. Somebody should try it. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, the, 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 I hate to tell people to not trust what other people say, but when you when you take propaganda with a grain of salt or or see it completely as bad faith, things make much more sense. The Republicans love to stand to wrap themselves in the Second Amendment as if they're champions of freedom, but they're not. They're the opposite. As I said before, you can't be free when so many children are dying. The Republicans can only win when the stuff they want to do seems reasonable. The stuff they want to do is never reasonable, and that's why they always have to lie. But lying comes easy when you either inhabit the world of white power or you are its ally, because white power is a lie. Right? I mean, the white power says, I'm better than my neighbor, Irene, down the street, who's black. And, you know, I'm not. I was created... And my creator created me equally to her. And that's the truth. That's, and this is why white power can't tolerate the truth, especially can't tolerate the truth in the mouths of those who are oppressed. That's, that's unacceptable. Can't do that. Andrew, you were just touching on the bizarre unfolding story about the police response to the Uvalde shooting. And maybe by the time this podcast is released, more things will have come to light and there'll be more clarity. But I don't even know how to start because my mind can't like wrap around how badly the cops screwed this situation up. But I wonder if there's more to be said than just, you know, there was incompetent leadership amongst the police department or the kinks in the chain of communication weren't worked out. And you were just alluding to that, Andrew, that there was this bizarre scenario where some cops were evacuating their own children, but they weren't going after the shooter. But I wonder if there's some more systematic critique to be made of policing or something, because it just seems like if we're not looking at individual gun violence as a bunch of isolated one-off things, is there something we can also say about this? Well, well, certainly what we can say is that what happened in Uvalde is in part a reflection of the relation between the cops and the communities they, quote, serve, close quote. I've been reading just a bit about Uvalde and, you know, what the upper middle class white population is and who who, who the the people that the the cops recruit people from and then the, the Hispanic people and so forth. And it was not just some cops rescuing their own kids. Off-duty cops, if the reporting is correct, were given permission to go rescue their own kids, but not given permission to rescue the, the other kids. Okay, so if the reporting is correct, this, this is also policy. And, I mean, imagine these were all upper-middle-class white kids. Would the re- response have been the same? I, I don't think so. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's really not much more to say about that. I mean, full stop, right? Here's a couple of facts to keep in mind. That is that the Evaldi Police Department has decided not to cooperate with the state investigation of what happened. Usually when that happens, the cop shops are hiding something, right? So what are they hiding? I don't think it's just their cowardice and incompetence. I actually think the cowardice and incompetence is a cover-up for something else. And that other that something else is that society in Uvalde, from what, the way I understand it, is up, down, and very explicit, and everybody knows where they, where they're supposed to be, right? And it's fixed; it's, it doesn't change. So the people at the top are white; they have more money, and they have the most guns. 
And this is underscored by the fact that so much of that town's budget goes to law enforcement, something like 40%. The people who dominate the public discourse in Uvalde are white. And those who people who are not white, even when they're in positions of power, are not so powerful as to have a say in public discourse. For example, the police chief, the sheriff, and the person who runs the in-school cop system, they're all Hispanic. But you wouldn't know it because they're not talking. The only people talking are the governor and the mayor and some other people and who are all white men. So from that context, you have to think like, well, these parents are naturally outraged, right, that the police are not serving them. And these parents are getting a lot of attention and their voices are starting to get louder and they're starting to crowd out of the public square the voices who normally dominate the public square. So in other words, democracy in Uvalde is actually getting sparked by this tragedy, right? Normal people there, people who just work and otherwise are subject to political power are actually exercising their political power in ways that are very disruptive to those who depend, who profit from being on top of society there. And the evidence for my claim here is the reaction to Beto O'Rourke. I don't know if you saw some video of Beto confronting Greg Abbott, that's the Texas governor, during a press conference. Beto is basically giving voice to all those parents and to any parent who fears their child being killed. That's all he was doing. He was the voice of moral concern. You should have heard, the video really demonstrates the the reaction it was so aggressive and hostile toward him. The mayor even called him a son of a bitch, and it was really aggressive. It's that, that tells that suggests to me that these people understand how fragile their position is right now. And I think that that's what the Uvalde Police Department is hiding. If they cooperate, uh, not only will they be found out to be cowards, but that information about the police department can be used by people who would not normally be in the position to exercise political power. And that's that's very destabilizing and frightening to these people. The piece that you posted, I think it was yesterday, about the NRA or the, about the gun lobby, it was called When Democratic Leaders and White Liberals Scapegoat the NRA. You were questioning this piece, a trope that we hear all the time when talking about gun violence, and that is people saying, look how much the NRA funds this senator or that senator. You know, so the gun lobby is seen to be a major, the major kingmaker in this situation, the, the force in society that is keeping this problem happening year after year. But you say that this is like a, I guess, primarily a distraction from the real issue. Why don't you explain what you're talking about? Yeah, I call it a convenient fiction. Why is it a fiction? Well, at the NRA, wasn't even the top spender last year on lobbying. The top spender was the sporting federation or something. It's, it's ironically based in Newtown, Connecticut, where the Sandy Hook massacre took place. Anyway, all of the so-called gun lobbies spent about nearly $16 million in lobbying last year. I'm not like somebody who follows the dark money and all that stuff, but $16 million just doesn't seem like a lot to me. It doesn't seem so monolithic that we we can point to it as reason why the NRA is standing in the way of sensible gun reform. I don't, I don't know about that. The image that comes to mind so much when I think about that, the NRA blaming is, do you remember Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine, uh, his movie about the Columbine, Columbine massacre that came out? I guess a long time ago now, but there's a scene where I guess it's probably a shot of a Senate or the 
maybe it's Congress or something, and he's superimposed all these like price tags over all the different politicians that represent how much money they made from uh, various gun rights people. And uh, for whatever criticisms one might have of Michael Moore, he can sometimes make visual things that stick in your brain, right? So that always sticks in my brain. And I imagine these guys walking around with their little price tags about how much it costs for the gun lobby to to purchase their political, you know, influence. But you're making the point that, look, it's proportionally, it's not that much money, right? $16 million in a country of about 320 million people works out to about five cents per person. It really is chicken feed. Yeah. So you have to you have to think, well, why is the Republican Party so dead set against anything that would, quote unquote, infringe your right to bear arms? And I think, you know, I hate to sound like a one trick pony here, but it's it's way more than money. Uh, I think Michael Moore is a white liberal. He's exactly the white liberal I'm talking about in this piece. He's blind to the, the resilience of white power in this country. And to the depth and the roots of it, it, you know, how widespread it is among the population. He wants to make it a cabal of people who are doing this for profit and he doesn't understand that there's a demand for this and that there's the supply of this because there is the demand for it his general politics has been that way also oh the people who vote for trump you know they're good people and if you appeal to them in terms of some economic populism everything will be fine just whitewashing the racism and xenophobia and so forth. And I mean, he even said stuff like, it was very popular, but he, he was among the people who said it. Oh, a lot of the people who voted for Trump also voted for Obama. And Obama was black, so how could they possibly be racists? That kind of stuff. That's the line. The reason the Republicans are dead set against any kind of gun reform is because they're giving their voters what they want, right? Their voters want a restoration of democracy that is white democracy and they are not going to tolerate you taking away their gun because taking away their gun to them is taking away their freedom which is taking away their power to step on the necks of other people the white liberals are a complicated bunch on the one hand two cheers for getting outraged and never wanting to accept the role of white power in society but on the other hand you really need to see the role of white power in our society to see what's really really going on in my piece, I point out the fact that a lot of white liberals, what they want the president to do is lean on people like Joe Manchin to to agree to a carve out of the filibuster in order to pass gun legislation. Beneath that is a concern that if they do not take bold action, or whatever that might mean, that the base of the Democratic Party will not know who to blame and so therefore may not show up in November. And my point is that, oh my God, if the base of the Democratic Party does not know who to blame, then white liberals have completely failed in, in what they should have been doing. You know, they, it's not the Democratic leadership's fault. You know, you can't just tell them do something and then, you know, hope people show up in November. What you really should be doing is looking at your own, the fact that you benefit from deeply rooted political advantages that are older than you are. And by becoming more aware of that, you can see clearly what's at stake and who's at fault and vote accordingly. This empty gesture politics stuff kind of annoys me. You know, I, I, I agree with you, but I, I put a lot more of the blame not on kind of like your liberal pro-democratic party average person. There's a systematic occlusion. 
exactly the occlusion that you are referring to, the focus on the NRA, ignoring of the, the, the white power issue when it comes to guns. You don't hear that from the mouths of the Democratic Party people ever. And as you say, they know what they're saying is a fiction. You know, it's very, it's very clear to them. They also know that, you know, the guy named David Shore, right? The, 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 the young pundit, right? You know, he comes right out and says, look, the Trump base are racist. They're misogynist. They're this, they're that, and the other. And it's very good electoral strategy to act like that's not the case and that these are just disaffected, dispossessed people pummeled by, by neoliberalism because what is our job? We got to pull two percentage points of the population from the R column to the D column. And that is, I think, mainstream Democratic Party thinking. So it, it seems to me like there is just kind of like this conspiracy of silence among the Democrats not to really say the truth regarding the gun issue you know, and the violence and, and the, the white power and the white supremacism and the, the real core of the problem, it's trying to say, oh, well, you know, there's good people on both sides. And what you don't want to do is piss off the people in the middle. So I don't even think that they're like concerned with their base. The, the, the David Shore strategy is, hell, the base is locked up. They got nowhere to go. What we got to do is cater to a few percentage of people in the middle. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I, I, one of my theories is that most people, most of the time, have no idea what's going on in politics. And I also think that most of us pundits don't either, <laughs> you know, because we can't you can't see into the future and the future surprises us sometimes. And uh, I think that white liberals need to look at themselves and elevate the discourse around the history of white power such that the electeds see it happening and can put it in the context that I try to do at the editorial board in that guns, violence, white power, all of it is a kind of insurrection against the country we want. It is treasonous, it is lawless. It has contempt for equal treatment under law. I mean, you know, these are like, I'm, I'm appealing to fairly basic American principles, right? That are at odds with the natural order of things the top-down society. The, the Republicans know exactly what I'm talking about. That's why they always talk about top-down society in terms of equal treatment under law and American tradition. And, you know, they make it look like something that it is not. And I, I think if Democrats just talked about, a lot, you know, lots of Democrats actually are talking uh, about white power in this way, uh, either indirectly or directly. Uh, the problem is the Democratic leadership, of course. And I think that's also a generational thing. The Democratic leadership still remembers the pain of Ronald Reagan, you know, and the ass kicking that was for eight years. In many ways, I think the base of the Democratic Party is still fighting over the 1990s. So eventually we'll all get up to speed, <laughs> I hope, and uh, stop fighting the past and start fighting the present. Well, John Stewart, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I think we've had a great discussion. You're very welcome. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much, John. Uh, great conversation. We will link to the editorial board and to the specific pieces we discussed in this podcast. So check out the podcast description for um, these pieces and more writings by John Stewart. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. 
As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 